Saturday, December 9th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Several Americans are still being held hostage in Gaza as fighting intensifies between Israel and Hamas. Right now, Hamas is refusing to release civilian women who should have been part of the agreement. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Some Muslim Americans say they won't vote for the president next year, and they've launched their own campaign across swing states called Abandon Biden. But will it have any impact? I'm not that concerned about it as a problem. You know, you want to make sure that you are A, doing the right thing, but B, listening to your constituents. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Nowhere in Gaza is safe. That's the assessment of the United Nations Secretary General, who is pressing the international community for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Warning conditions are deteriorating for millions of civilians displaced by the fighting. But the conditions that allowed for a temporary pause last month no longer exist because of Hamas. Right now, Hamas is refusing to release civilian women who should have been part of the agreement. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says American diplomats are still in touch with Israel and Qatar to press Hamas, but the prospects are not promising. And more than 130 hostages are still being held in Gaza, kidnapped by Hamas during the October 7th terror attacks. That figure includes several Americans. The humanitarian pause also allowed critical aid, food, medicine and fuel to flow to Palestinian civilians, an effort made much more difficult as fighting resumed. Yeah, we're working very hard at, uh, on both of those things. And, and I mean, literally on a daily basis, if not, you know, multiple times per day, talking to our partners uh, in the region to see if we can't get another pause in place. John Kirby is the coordinator for strategic communications at the White House National Security Council. We spoke about the war in Gaza, ships coming under attack in the Red Sea, and the administration's case for continued U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Hamas really is the the reason why the pause ended. They just simply were not willing to uh, release some additional women and children that we know they have, um, and they just won't let them go. And uh, so, understandably, the Israelis weren't willing to to continue. Um, we're, we're we obviously want to get a, a pause back in place to get them out and to try to see if we can get additional hostages uh, that aren't in that original tranche of just women and children out, including, of course, our Americans. Um, so uh, it, it's a constant focus for the president and for the whole team. I want to talk about the, the aid aspect, but let me return real quick to the hostages. Is the number of Americans still believed to be in that seven, eight, nine range? Yes, sir. We believe it's it's probably eight. Okay. Um, and uh, and that that's the number that we're we're working off of. We don't have perfect information on all of them. We have better information on some than others just because the families are helping us out. Um, but we're uh, but we're we're working very very hard to see if we can get get them all out. And when you talk about not having perfect information, that means we don't necessarily know which group in Gaza is holding them and where they are. Presumably, they're they're being held in the in these tunnel systems. For some hostages, we have pretty good information. For others, not so much. So, uh, uh, you know, Hamas is is likely holding some of them. It may not be holding all of them. Um, and uh, and that's the case for the other 140 total 140 pop, uh, population of hostages that are that are being held. Um, and we can't be perfectly sure that they aren't being moved around. 
Uh, in fact, they most likely are. And in what size groups? And are they breaking up the groups? And I mean, it's it's a difficult uh, problem set to to get firm data and information on. That's one of the reasons why when the pause ended, we started flying our drones again to try to see if we can get a little bit more eyes on a little bit better information. I know when the uh, pause initially was announced that that week long pause was initially announced a few weeks ago. One of the, the reasons that um, a senior administration official said it was possible is because Hamas was more willing to make these concessions, given the amount of pressure militarily that they are under. Is that still the case? Is what kind of pressure is Hamas under militarily? And has the United States been able to assess what sort of degradation uh, Hamas uh, you know, has has been under has had as a result of, of the uh, Israeli uh, operations. Well, there's no 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 uh, no uh, no doubt that Hamas is under increasing pressure now that the pause ended uh, and Israeli operations resumed. And it's important to remember that their operations are designed primarily to go after the leadership. So they are trying to do exactly that: uh, find, fix, and finish some of the leadership and thereby putting pressure on uh, the whole Hamas network. Uh, we know those tactics very well. That's how, uh, how we went after ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, and it does, it can have a positive effect on, on degrading a, a terrorist network's ability to operate, to resource itself, to plan, to execute. And they have very much gone back at that effort in, you know, since the pause ended. And we know since the pause ended that they have had some success uh, on some uh, Hamas leaders. I would be careful, at least from here, from the White House, speaking to Israeli operations too specifically. I think I'd let them talk about the degree to which they believe they've had certain successes or not. But but I can say with, with surety that they that they have gone back to going, going back after the Hamas leaders and that that is putting pressure on them. Now, is it going to be enough pressure to get Hamas back into a pause, which is, I think, what you're really asking? Yeah, and the, yeah. the honest answer is, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to kind of see how this uh, unfolds. Even as the Israelis are putting military pressure on Hamas, we are using our diplomatic levers to put pressure on uh, all of our partners in the region to see if we can't find a way forward to get this pause back in place. So uh, we're all we're all kind of working towards uh, towards the same goal, which is get those hostages home where they belong. Let me go back to the humanitarian assistance. I know that the number of trucks is increasing uh, through that Rafa crossing. What kind of assurances and what kind of safeguards does the United States have to make sure that this U.S. provided aid is not being used by Hamas, is not being stolen by Hamas, is not helping uh, Hamas leaders and not the innocent civilians in Gaza? We're working closely with, uh, obviously, the Israelis and the Egyptians to develop an inspection regime. Actually, it's already in place uh, to keep it in place and maintain this inspection regime so that, number one, we know that everything on those trucks is legitimate humanitarian assistance. Number two, uh, we're working very closely with partners on the ground. There's the U.N. Relief Agency that's there on the ground, as well as other humanitarian organizations. Uh, and the U.N. is really primarily responsible for once the trucks get in, to helping them get to the right places and get the aid distributed uh, where, where it needs to, to be. And so we're in constant touch, USAID in particular, constant touch with uh, our UN partners um, uh, about monitoring where the trucks are going and where the aid is, is getting. I can tell you that, uh, you know, obviously we don't have boots on the ground in Gaza. So I, I, 
you know, I wouldn't want people to come away from this discussion thinking that we're we're on the ground with soldiers inspecting every single package. That's not the way this works. Uh, but we have seen no indication, again, close co co coordination with our partners on the ground, no indication that Hamas has siphoned off this aid um, and used it for their own purposes. And look, the big worry there mostly is fuel. And yeah. the Israelis have agreed to keep an increased level of fuel going in, which is significant. Obviously, it's really important for so many purposes for the people of Gaza. Uh, and we just haven't seen any proof or evidence that Hamas uh, is siphoning that that fuel or, or that aid off there. And I, I also want to I don't want to make it sound like I'm being too sanguine here. This is not something we're, we're going to take our eye off the ball on. I mean, we we're watching this uh, very, very, very hard every single day. Let me ask a question about the, the civilian impact. I know that you have gotten a lot of questions about the number of civilian casualties in Gaza and the steps that Israel is taking to try and, and minimize that, given the, the conditions in which they find themselves fighting. There have been calls, though, in Congress to better check the way that U.S. provided weapons are being used, having some sort of conditions based aid to Israel. One, one of the, the senators who has brought that up is Bernie Sanders. Is he wrong to want those types of checks on the way that American uh, ammunition is used by Israel or, or by any country that, that we deliver uh, weapons to? I would tell you that any security assistance we provide to any nation around the world, uh, uh, there, there are there are baked in expectations of, of it being used appropriately and in, accord, in accordance with the, the law of armed conflict. That's not, that's not any different for Israel than it is for, for Ukraine. Um, it, it, th those are expectations that are, that are baked in. And, and the president got asked this question uh, over the Thanksgiving break. And, and what he said is that uh, he believes the way that we have been working with Israel uh, has been working. It has been uh, effective in terms of of uh, of getting results. Now, uh, uh, I want to make it clear right at the top of this that uh, that the number of civilian casualties that should be acceptable to anybody is zero. We don't want to see anybody innocent hurt, Israeli or Palestinian. And yes, there have been many thousands of civilian casualties on the Palestinian side, and many more thousands wounded, and of course now more than a million internally displaced. Uh, we're aware of, of that. Uh, uh, we're aware of the tragedy in so many families. We're certainly going to stay very closely lashed up with our Israeli counterparts about being careful, deliberate, cautious, uh, and to try to minimize civilian casualties. And I would tell you a couple of things. Number one, they've been receptive to that uh, message. And two, they have actually uh, taken some steps to try to be more precise. For instance, when they went into northern Gaza, they went in with a much smaller force than they had originally planned to do. And that's based on some of the perspectives we were able to share with them. From We sent over three uh, active duty military generals with experience in urban warfare in places like Fallujah and Mosul, and they shared some of our lessons learned, and the Israelis listened to that. Um, when they started to plan for operations in the south, they dropped leaflets and they published maps of, of places where people should or shouldn't go. Um, to, to make it clear, you know, what, what the operational picture was going to kind of look like. I honestly don't know too many modern militaries that would do that. That is telegraphing your punch. That's, 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 a, that's a, not a risk-free option for the Israelis to do that, to lay out a map online for the public to, to tell people where to go and where not to go. I mean, um, th there's, there's obviously operational security risk there, but they took that risk. So I'm not I'm not discounting a single civilian casualty. I don't want anybody to come away thinking that. But I, I, I do want to stress that 
uh, when it comes to pro providing security assistance to Israel, it, it's still flowing. And our expectations are still maintained that we want to make sure that they are being as careful uh, as they possibly can be. I had one question about what's happening uh, in the uh, Red Sea. Obviously, these commercial ships coming under uh, attack by the Yemen-based Houthi rebels. You had said in a briefing this week that uh, while uh, the Houthis are pulling the trigger, the guns are being provided by Iran. Is Iran directing these attacks? In other words, are they ordering these operations? I don't want um, anybody to, uh, to 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 blanch at at uh, our our knowledge of Iran's complicity here. I mean, the Houthis would not have these advanced missiles. They would not have these drones, uh, the capacity and the capability uh, without Iranian support, particularly by the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, so Iran is very much complicit in, in these attacks. And I think I probably just need to leave it there for right now. Let me ask about Ukraine. Obviously, the Senate, the House is gone um, for the weekend um, without aid. What is the timeline here and what does that look like if this does not get done before the end of the year? What does U.S. assistance to Ukraine look like? It, it will, uh, regrettably, it, it will dry up. As you know, we just announced a security assistance package a couple of days ago. Um, I think you'll, I think you'll probably see uh, another one before the end of this month. But after that, uh, it's, it's, it, it, I, I don't see, I don't see more coming, um, and uh, and that's. That's just kind of where we are. I mean, we really do need this uh, supplemental package passed by uh, by Congress to, to help us help Ukraine. Um, and this is a critical time. Obviously, it's a critical time from a financial perspective in terms of the how much money we've got left in these authorities. Uh, well, as, as Jake said, you know, you know, going forward, if the money runs out, we'll try to do what we can. Uh, but uh, but there is no to, to quote our OMB director, Shalanda Young, there's no magical pot of money over the rainbow that we can tap into. So we'll we'll have to look at our options. Uh, but whatever those options are, they're not going to be as productive and as constructive for the Ukrainian military uh, as the supplemental aid that we've been asking for from, from members of Congress. Um, and so the, the, the calendar from a financial perspective is certainly not in our favor. It's also just from a a war fighting perspective, not in the Ukrainians' favor, because the winter's coming on. And um, I don't think we should expect that the Russians are just going to lay back in the winter once um, and sort of wait for spring. Every indication that we're seeing is that they want to go back on the offense. And they have tried in the last few weeks, They've not been very successful. The Ukrainians have been able to push them back. But if, if the Ukrainians run out of artillery shells, uh, then, and the Russians know that, they will be emboldened to go back on the offense here uh, in the winter months when the when the ground gets hard um, and it'll be much, much more difficult for the Ukrainians to fight back. The other aspect of this is is weaponizing energy, which Putin will do, has done and will continue to do, launching airstrikes, drones, missiles uh, at at, uh, at power plants, water stations, that kind of thing. Uh, he wants to weaponize the winter. Uh, he wants to terrorize. Uh, the Ukrainian people, and we are trying to get them the appropriate air defense system so that they can better protect that infrastructure. If that effort drives up, then that infrastructure becomes much more uh, vulnerable to Russian attacks. Um, and, you know, literally the lights will go out in, in Ukraine for the winter. And I just, it's hard for us here to see how that isn't, that anybody who believes in our national security interests and protecting a fellow democracy uh, could 
could be willing to let that happen. I know that is a case that you will continue to make. Uh, Admiral, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for all of the, the context and information as always, and uh, have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. I'm always happy to come on anytime. After President Biden decided not to call for a ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and Hamas, American Muslim activists like Jayani Hussein decided they would not vote for President Biden next year. We are announcing that President Biden has lost the 2024 election. He and others like Hazim Nasiridam held a press conference in Dearborn, Michigan, to say that Muslims, specifically in swing states, were coordinating. Arizona. Biden only won by 10,500 votes. There are over 25,000 Muslim voters in the state of Arizona. And I will work day and night to ensure that those voters abandon Biden. Axios points out the president won Michigan by 154,000 votes, a state that has 278,000 Arab Americans, that Biden won Georgia by 11,800 votes in a state that has 57,000 Arab Americans per census data. And the Arab American Institute says most Arab voters supported Biden in 2020. But does this matter? 3.45 million Americans are estimated to be Muslim. That's just over 1% of the U.S. population. The margins that these elections have been decided in 2016 and 2020 are razor thin, right, on a, on a state-by-state basis. Jessica Tarlov is a Democratic strategist and co-host of The Five. So obviously it's a concern and it's an issue, uh, but I would add to the mix that there is no evidence that the disapproval numbers um, in terms of Democrats uh, with Biden, most of those have come from registered voter polls versus likely voter polls. Um, and we do know that a lot of people kind of hit the streets to protest and don't actually show up on Election Day. Mm. Um, we're also a year out. I'm not that concerned about it as a problem. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you are a doing the right thing. And I think Biden is doing the right thing. And that, you know, helps him sleep at night. But be listening to your constituents and making sure that those that are concerned about innocent loss of life um, in Palestine, which all of us are, um, are being spoken to and cared for. Um, but I'm not seeing any evidence that this is going to be the seismic hit to the Biden administration that a lot of conservatives are wish casting. And you you make the point that the margins there could matter in a swing state, right? If you if you only win mm -hmm. by 11,000 votes and there are more than 11,000 voters who are Muslim who don't want to vote for you, that could be a problem. But if they don't go for President Biden, they are for the most part Muslim voters not going for a Republican, certainly probably not Trump. Like yeah. they're just staying are they just staying home or what what's happening there? Yeah, I Listen, I, I think that it's an interesting, I mean, Donald Trump has many tightropes that he has to walk. Um, obviously, the legal one being <laughs> it should be his number one priority, um, you know, with a, ga a new gag order every day. But um, he has to appeal to a base that wants to hear him talk about a Muslim ban and then also consider that he's trying to win a general election with these thin margins. Right. He, you know, I understand why in his head he thinks I came this close. Right. In Georgia and Wisconsin and Arizona, right. etc. Maybe I could get there. And obviously telling people who are concerned about Palestinians that there'll be a new Muslim ban and we're not giving any visas to anyone from Gaza is probably not the right way to do that. And 
I think that um, a few prominent um, Muslim media figures like Mehdi Hassan um, and Ayman all over uh, who are at MSNBC have done a really good job of threading, threading that needle in saying this is a problem for Biden, but it doesn't mean it's an advantage for Trump in right. terms of turnout. You just have to make sure that you can create a big enough tent that these people understand that their vote is safe with you. I think you could also see, which we did in 2016 and 2020, people leaving the top of the ticket or being more apt to leave the top of the ticket empty and voting down ballot if there is yeah. a problem with Biden's approach. But you, you're not voting for the guy who's screaming about a Muslim ban if your concern are Muslim rights. Jess, if if the Biden administration is worried about this at all, is what they're worried about the possible intersection with younger voters on this issue, many of whom may think that they are siding with the, the Palestinians right now in this? Yeah, um, sure. I think it is a majority of that. And if you look at the polling on the issue, um, you're always the most sensitive groups are the younger people and the older people, right? And they also right. are the more reliable, well, since the Obama years, the most reliable demographic um, in terms of turning out. But I'm not sure if you saw this at the beginning of the week, the um, Kennedy Institute of Politics youth poll came out, which is the gold standard poll of Gen Zs and younger millennials, the 18 to 29 year old cohort. And they had Biden up 24 or 25 points with younger voters. And there had been a sea of polls. Yeah. The New York Times poll, the NBC poll that had all been putting him within certainly single digits. But I think the New York Times Siena poll was even like one point. And people yeah. were going crazy about this. And it was registered voters versus likely voters. Um, but it's pretty clear that there wait just tell me why tell me why that's the gold standard because that was my next question was the, all those polls indicating that younger voters are actually considering trump or maybe on the fence or that that it's so tight you're saying what that this poll uh matters more because the methodology like why should we pay attention to this one when it comes well, to younger historically, voters historically it's been the greatest predictor of it's been the most accurate predictor of youth turnout um, and where they're voting. It's like Ann Seltzer in Iowa, right? Like no one is kind of calling into question what the Des Moines Register poll looks like. Um, and this is the case for that as well. And it also isn't asking you to suspend disbelief, right? Like the idea that Donald Trump is within a couple points of Joe Biden with young voters when the Democratic agenda is rooted in causes that matter to young people, from climate to protecting a woman's right to choose, criminal justice reform, student debt relief, you know, it it's begging you to give up everything that you know about politics in America to believe that Trump is within one of Biden, which was one of the results. Same thing like the vote, the polls that show that Biden is losing black voters right. at such an incredible clip. That, you know, I mean, you'd have to go back decades to even get within the realm of this. You know, Donald Trump was an, an anomaly in getting 11, 12 percent of the black vote. And then you would have me believe that it's going to be close. It's just impossible. So that's why uh, the Harvard poll is so meaningful. And also, is, like I said, 24, 25 points, which actually mirrors the result in 2020. Uh, and it's much more likely that it's the same rather than it is diametrically opposed, right? That it's a 180 degree difference. Right.
So um, there are people you can have on, like um, Josh Kraushauer uh, was tweeting about this as well. And I'm I'm sure that he's on with you all the time, um, can talk (laughs) about this issue as well and the methodologies of all of it. But I would say to your audience, go check out um, Elliot Morris, who's at 538 now. Um, They just published new standards in terms of what polls they're including in the 538 forecast. it's really methodologically interesting. Um, they're paying a lot of attention to small things um, in terms of how this stuff is forecasted in terms of registered voters versus likely voter models. Um, and it's different than how Real Clear is doing it. I think a lot of people throw around the Real Clear politics average. Um, and 538 is, I think, being more meticulous about this um, and taking it more seriously. And I'm sure that they have a good explanation as well um, about the differences. There's also the online versus uh, phone poll issue. Sure. And when you have an online poll, the Democratic support amongst younger people is much, much higher. Go figure. Kids want to be on their phones, right? Like they're not sitting at home <laughs> for 10 minutes on the phone with someone. So the, the president did meet with Muslim and Arab leaders and activists mm-hmm. who, who told him he wasn't apparently empathetic enough toward them. And they recounted yeah. that he said he was sorry, that he said he was even disappointed in himself. Do you think that sort of behind the scenes narrative helps him, you know, if at least he's coming across as empathetic there with with this block of voters? Sure. I think that any time Joe Biden is leading with his best quality, which is his humanity and his empathy, um, it's a good thing. I think that has been the message across the administration, right, from Secretary Blinken yeah. to Terry Austin, not saying I would have done things differently, but there have been regrettable outcomes. And I think, frankly, the Israelis would say that too, right? The new number is for every Hamas soldier or terror, whatever we want to call them, that has been murdered or taken out by the IDF in Gaza, there are two to three lost civilian lives which actually puts the number, I think, about 1,500 to 2,000 below what the Ministry of Health um, in Palestine is clocking it at, which isn't like a huge difference. It's still like 14,000, 15,000 lives, which is way too many. Um, But of course, it makes you look better if you're being empathetic and kind about this. But it is important to keep in mind that he's not saying I'm changing course, right? Or that until these hostages are released, I think there are 138 that are left, you cannot talk to Netanyahu or anyone about ending this campaign. We still have, what is it, eight Americans um, Mm -hmm. that are over there. And, you know, it's maybe not the right crowd if you're meeting with Muslim leaders to talk about who's actually violating the ceasefire, but they're, you know, they're continually calling for a ceasefire, which we had one on October 7th when Hamas did this. And we had one last week when they decided to stop returning women and children. And I think a lot of that is due to the condition that these people are in, whether they are still alive or have been murdered at this point. Um, But there's still a lot of educating that needs to go on, especially with younger people, about the terms under which all of this happened. And that was in stark focus, listening to the three university presidents in their testimony before Congress on Tuesday, right? Like these are supposed to be the smartest people in the country, right? If you're leading MIT, Harvard, and UPenn. Um, And 
it seemed like a stunning lack of understanding of a anti-Semitism in America and on these campuses, but also the sexual atrocities um, and the deranged terror that was taken out on these people all under the auspices of there being a ceasefire. And I think that's probably why we can call Hamas terrorists. Um, mm -hmm. If we, if we want to, if we're looking for the label. Um, yeah. Jess, the, this week, the president also told a fundraiser that if uh, we've all been talking about this quote, right? If Trump weren't running, he likely wouldn't mm -hmm. be. Um, and then he was asked about that afterward. And he said, um, I, you know, I expect so, but look, he is running and I have to run. When asked if he would drop out of Trump did, the president said, no, not now. As, as if it's, as if it's too late, but it did feel like he was sort of floating something. Did you feel that way? Or was it more of a defense? I think it was more of a defense than floating something. I'm, I'm sure that all of this weighs on him and it's hard and it's hard at 80. And then you're thinking like, I'm going to be doing this job until I'm 86, which is, just, you know, like I, I'm turning 40 <laughs> next year. I don't think I should have to work anymore. So, you know. <laughs> But I think it was honestly unfiltered Biden, which is the best Biden, um, which people appreciate. And the idea is that Donald Trump is an existential threat um, to the country. And that remained true now, remains true now and was certainly true in 2020. And he's the guy to beat him. He's the guy who did beat him. And he's the guy who's leading a party that's overperforming all political expectations. From yeah, but now that we see some of this polling, Jess, that's indicating that yeah. it's not such a slam dunk for, for Biden, it looks like some of these swing states might be in question here. So uh, what, what is it? that's why I ask, you know, is he floating something? Because it doesn't look like it doesn't look good for him. I don't think that the polling is scaring them, honestly, like polling 11 months out now is almost mirrors actually is better than in a lot of cases, but mirrors that Biden was down by five to Romney. And Nate Silver wrote a whole article about like, maybe Obama. Obama's going to drop out. Yeah. yeah. And we know what happened that, right? And Obama will go down in history as one of the most important Democratic leaders and cult figures, right? <laughs> like, so <laughs> I don't think it's so much the polling and that they have faith that it will come around, especially as people kind of reckon with the economic reality of what's going on versus how they feel and what they're being fed. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this kind of subplot in terms of the numbers versus the way that it's being reported, but Biden has this incredible economic recovery that he wants to be out there speaking to and Jared Bernstein and all of his surrogates and people are just completely disconnected um from because when you go to the grocery store you can't afford your whole pay it's like well, great i have a job but my whole paycheck just it's not it's not even whole paycheck being whole foods anymore it's like you can just go to any supermarket and your paycheck's gone yeah I, yes but like the cost of milk is down the cost of bread is down the cost of eggs is down the cost of gas is down inflation is down, down from that high though not down from like pre-pandemic right. you know it's still like way higher well, I think it's like a point higher in terms of the inflation, but, you know, we want two-ish percent inflation. I think we're at three and a half or that's what Jay Powell's, you know, listen, I'm not here to say that the economy is perfect. I'm just here to say that the economy is better than the average American thinks that it is. 
And I do believe a lot of that has to do with a relentless media doom cycle, which frankly, I, you know, I'm a part of, I, you know, we're watched by 3 million people a day and that's what we're talking about. And you can't refute some of it, of course. Um, But I think that the Biden administration has faith that that will turn around and, you know, I know we talked about this maybe a few, a few times ago, a few visits ago, but I think Kamala is a huge part of the problem because if he had a VP that people felt more confident in, then this wouldn't be as much of an issue. So what about that, Jess? What about that debate between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom? And Gavin Newsom said, Kamala Harris, is. he said it again, she's next in line, I think. I mean, he even like conceded to this pecking order. So like what is, he says he's not running. I think everybody on in the Democratic Party believes Gavin Newsom's not running. But if he was the VP, if he was the alternative, would that change things? Oh, yeah, I think it would. I mean, but... uh... Biden would never have, he was picking a black woman for that job. So Gavin Newsom isn't really relevant to that conversation. You're not taking, first of all, he's not taking anyone off the ticket, but you're not going to take a black woman off the ticket and put a white man on the ticket, right? So you would be looking at a woman of color um, to fill that space. Probably someone like a Val Demings, who a lot of people wanted. And if you remember, it came down to like Jim Clyburn really wanted Kamala, And there were a lot of people in the Congressional Black Caucus, including Cedric Richmond, I believe, who wanted Val Demings. And it was like this internal fight, um, which Clyburn won. And, you know, I I don't think has panned out the way that he or anyone had hoped. So I think that that is a big factor in all of this and will make also who Trump picks. I assume he's going to be the nominee and even bigger piece of that. But for the DeSantis Newsom debate, I'm, you know, we were all sitting there saying, like, you can like, you know, you like who you like. I like Joe Biden. I think he's done a really great job, but you can't deny the energy difference, right? Of a couple of guys in their 40s and 50s listening yeah. to people who run huge important states, right? They run countries unto themselves. Um, and thinking like, oh, this is what would make the American public feel better about showing up to vote next November, right? If it was one of these two guys. All right. Jessica Tarlov, thanks for joining. Thanks for the conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, we talk about a former ambassador and high-ranking State Department official who was working for Cuba for decades as well as Republicans' impeachment inquiry against President Biden, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's retirement, and Ukraine aid. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.